Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 35 through 54. Our topic is Jesus prepares his disciples for the coming judgment in AD 70, and he's trying to get them ready to establish the kingdom and to do service in his kingdom. In the previous audio, dealing with the previous incidences in Luke, we had Jesus talking about the love of money and how you better be rich toward God and put your heart where your treasure is, put it in heaven instead of for money. Now, of course, that's related to the theme of preparing the disciples for the coming persecution, but it was actually occasion because somebody interrupted his teaching to the disciples about being prepared for the coming dis- persecution. Somebody interrupted him and said, judge between my brother and me about our inheritance. So Jesus went off on a very instructive rabbit trail, tells the disciples, don't worry about what you eat, about your clothes, about your housing, because I'm going to take care of all that, even while you're undergoing this persecution, which is about to come upon you, the difficult times. So we'll start now in verses 35 and 36, Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. He's giving them a parable. You must be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Now, who is Jesus speaking this parable to? Later on, Peter's going to ask the same question. Lord, is this parable for us or for everybody? So it's not really clear, but we know that it's at least for his disciples. And he's telling them to be ready for service. Have your lamps lit. Now, that word for be ready, the NIV translates it as be dressed ready for service. Actually, in my opinion, that's a better translation than the Holman Christian Study Bible here. Because if you look at the Greek, the Greek word is wrap yourself around with cloth. Gird yourself. Because that's what they did back then. They, The servants had long robes in, in the eastern countries back then, and they would wrap those long robes around their waist so they could do their work better without tripping up. So Jesus says, wrap your garments around yourself. Have your lamps lit. Again, this is because wedding banquets went way into the evening, and the master's going to return from the wedding banquet, and so it's going to be late at night, so you need to have your lamps lit so it'll be ready so you can serve him and welcome him, welcome him back to the his establishment. So when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. So this is basically saying, be ready. Now, the $64,000 question is, so that when he comes and knocks, when does the master come? This refer, that refer, is referring to Jesus, by the way, the master returning from the wedding banquet. That's Jesus. Well, Many people take that as referring to the second coming, but there's a problem with that. If the master comes at the second coming, Jesus comes at the second coming, and his servants are then ready to serve him, how are they going to serve him? When the second coming is here, every, all the evil, all the work we have to do is gone. All the preparation in the, in the church and all that kind of stuff is gone. It's over with. It's consummated. It, it, we're in heaven. We're in paradise. Now, I guess you could say you could still serve God in heaven, but the the... How can I say this? The urgency which Jesus is putting on his disciples here, be ready to serve, be ready to serve. It doesn't sound like it's what you're going to be doing in heaven at the second coming. So that leaves another option at any time. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit because Jesus can come back at any time. Second coming, 80, 70, 80, 100, whatever. Well, maybe so. I don't think so. The third option is when he comes in 80, 70 and wipes out the Jewish rabbinic kingdom that's going to be pretty traumatic, so you need to be ready for that. And you, need to be, you need to be ready to serve in his kingdom when the persecuting Jews are finished with their oppression of the church, and the church spreads like, like fizz coming out of a bottle that the cork's been let loose from. 
Chapter 12, verse 37 of Luke. Those slaves, the master will find alert when he comes, will be blessed. And again, he's talking to his 12 disciples. You guys need to be ready. He might have been talking to his disciples here too, not just the original 12. Whoever is still living in AD 70, you need to be ready. I assure you, he will get ready. Now, this is talking about the master now referring to Jesus. He will wrap himself around with cloth, is what the Greek says. He will get ready. Have them, have the servants reclined at the table, then come and serve them. So the master is serving the servants. This means that Jesus loves us so much that he, when he came back, I'm assuming it's AD 70, when he delivered the church from its suppression by the church's rabbinic persecutors, when Jesus came back, he says, okay, guys, I'm going to serve you now. And the gospel is going to spread everywhere. Think about this. The Son of God, who did not count it robbery to be equal with God, is coming back and taking the form of a humble servant and serving the servants, serving us, application time. Jesus wants to serve you. It's in his nature to serve you. Oh, I can't do that. I'm too humble for that. No, you are privileged as a member of the kingdom of God with confident access into the throne room of God as an adopted brother of Jesus Christ, as one who is sitting in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. You are privileged to have Jesus come and serve you. Now, that's hard for me to say because I, it's just hard for me to say, Jesus serving me? Jesus came to serve. Let's, let's look at some scriptures. Luke 22, verse 27. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it at the one at the table? But I, Jesus, am among you, my believers, as the one who serves. Jesus is amongst the believers as one who serves. Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Anybody that can die, on a pain, die a painful death on the cross for his people, he can serve his people too. Jesus wants to serve you. That's how much he loves you. John 13:4 through 5. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Jesus is serving his disciples by taking the status of a lowly slave, washing his disciples' feet. Now, of course, he did that as an example, so we would do the same thing. Jesus is our example. He serves us. We serve other people. John 13, 12 through 16, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus' disciples are the slaves. Jesus is the master. If the master can, is greater than the slave, and yet the master can wash people's feet, well, then by golly, the slave can wash people's feet too. That's what we're here for, to help, to serve. Find an opportunity. You want to make your life happy? Quit trying to make money. Try serving somebody. Try helping somebody. Nothing wrong with making money. I'm not saying that, but you know what I mean. You need to keep your priorities straight. Luke 12:38. If he, still continuing with this parable, if he, the master, comes in the middle of the night back to his household where his slaves were, he comes back in the middle of the night, even near dawn, and finds them alert, those slaves are blessed. Why? Because he's going to come back and serve them. If they're awake, if they're ready to sit down at the table with the master. Now, why would he be coming back at dawn or in the middle of the night? Because wedding feasts lasted a long time back then, deep into the night. Now, notice that it was not really expected for a servant to be up in the middle of the night or at dawn. They would probably be asleep. And the master would probably expect that. But here he comes back and finds them alert, waiting for him. He's going to say, whoa, 
good and faithful servants. You're, you, you want to serve me, and you've been waiting for me, and here I am. Of course, that was 40 long years those disciples had to undergo that persecution before the Jews were wiped out in AD 70, and Jesus knew that was a long time. That's why he's telling them, be on the alert. Be ready. Keep going. The church did, as a matter of fact, suffer a great shrinkage right before AD 70, the so-called great apostasy. And let me say this. I am interpreting this from an Orthodox preterist viewpoint. If you don't hold that viewpoint, well, maybe you ought to look into it because it's the only thing that really explains all this very well, in my humble opinion. Luke 12:39 through 40. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not let his house be broken into. So Jesus apparently is switching parables here. Again, talking about a homeowner waiting for something, waiting for a thief in this case, like a thief in the night. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So here the parable compares Jesus with a thief who comes at a time when you're not looking for it. After 40 years of waiting, that's a long time of not seeing Jesus, of being persecuted, things not going too well. And so the tendency might be to quit looking, say, well, he, he's not coming. He's not coming. I'm just going to go back to being a Jew, keeping the law, wasting my life away. No, keep waiting for him. Application time. How many times in this life do you think want Jesus to come deliver you from your crapola, the horrible things that happen in your life, and he doesn't come as soon as you want him to? you got to keep on watching. you got to keep on waiting till he comes and solves the situation and intrudes himself into your problems and fixes them for you because he loves you, because he is coming to sit down with you and to serve you, because you are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and the apple of his eye. He loves you and he wants to help you, but sometimes you got to wait for that help. And the point is, is when that happens, what's, what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Endurance. you got to endure. This idea of not knowing when Jesus is coming back. Now, Jesus did give them a general idea. He said before, this, this, all these things will, will, this generation will not have passed away until all these things have occurred. So once they saw approximately 40 years from the time that Jesus spoke passed, they would know that it's sometime around there he's coming. But that's just a general idea. They don't know the exact hour. As the NIV study Bible says, Christ's coming is certain, but the hour is not certainly known. In the Olivet Discourse, which is referring to the events of AD 70, Matthew 24, 36, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. So Jesus himself didn't know exactly when it was coming, but he, as again, he knew the general time. That generation would not pass away, so he, the length of a generation was a, a time indicator he knew about. He knew generally, but he, he did not know specifically when he was coming to destroy Jerusalem. The Father would send him on that mission once he got back to heaven. Matthew twenty four forty four. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All of it discourse again. All right, I've been saying that the time of his coming in these in this second parable and the first parable is referring to eighty seventy. Other people have other ideas. Gill says it could be eighty seventy. Also said it could, be, it could be death. You don't know when the Son of Man is coming to take you into heaven as he watches your life expire. Well, that might be a good application, but I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. And it could be the second coming, too, if you're a futurist. But on other grounds, I can't disprove that in this particular passage, but on other grounds, complicated eschatological grounds, I take the orthodox preterist view that it's referring to AD 70. Luke 12, verse 41. Lord, Peter asked, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? I don't know why Peter asked that. He might have wanted to know if Jesus had special instructions for the disciples. He might have wanted to think, 
Well, maybe the the run of the mill disciples needed to hear us, but us exalted apostles, we don't need to hear this because we're big shots in the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking. But the NIV Study Bible says that the answer to this is Jesus meant for the parables to be to be everyone. I don't know how the NIV Study Bible knows that because Jesus didn't answer Peter correct directly. In verse 42, he answered Peter with another parable about a faithful and sensible manager. I think, when we look at that parable shortly, I think this makes it look like he's talking mainly, well, mainly to his apostles, but also with secondary application to the other disciples, I think. Normally, Jesus spoke directly to the disciples, to the, to the disciples without parables. So here, maybe that's another reason Peter's saying, well, wait a minute now, Jesus, you normally tell parables to other people, not to us. Are you telling this parable to us? Maybe that's why he said that. Which parable is he talking about? We've just looked at two. One is the parable of the wedding and the servants, the master coming back from a wedding feast and the servants stayed up to wait for him. The other parable was the housekeeper watching for the thief in the night, both of which parables had the same point. Now Jesus answers Peter's question, who is this parable for? He answered it with another parable in verse 42 in Luke 12. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible manager his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? Now, what Jesus is referring to here, the manager is the disciples, the people in charge, the foundation, apostles of the kingdom of God, the church of Christ. He's the sensible manager, or they are the sensible manager. Who is the faithful and sensible manager? His master, Jesus, will put in charge of his household servants, that means believers in Christ, the ordinary disciples, to give them their allotted food at the proper time. Who's going to feed the sheep? Those guys are. And so I think Jesus is saying, well, basically, Peter, we're giving the disciple to you. Now, it might have reference to the ordinary disciples, the people in the crowd that were listening, but the main point of this parable about the sensible manager is the main point. Well, the main point of the parable about the master coming back from the wedding feast and, and the master of the house waiting for the thief to break in, waiting for the Lord to come back. In other words, the points of those parables were, hey, you are faithful and sensible managers, and you're going to be in charge and that's why I'm saying you're a good and faithful servant, and I'm going to sit down with you and serve you and all that, because I expect you to feed my sheep. I expect you to be in charge of the household servants. I expect you to be in charge of the church of Jesus Christ. I expect you to give the believers in me their allotted food at the proper time. And, of course, that would be spiritual food, and not to exclude physical food. Luke 12, verse 43 and 44. That slave whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. Working in the kingdom despite the persecution of the Jewish rabbinic order. He will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, he will put him, he, the master, Jesus, will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, you, Peter, and your fellow disciples will be in charge of all the household, of all my spiritual possessions down here, my sheep that I came down here to save, the elect that God gave me before the foundation of the world that I might come win them, I'm putting you in charge of them, Peter. You and your fellow people, not just Peter, I'm not a Catholic, but he's, he's talking about all the apostles there. They're in charge of all that. Again, the theme, get ready for what's coming. I'm not coming back to Lady Sebi. you got 40 years of hell ahead of you. So gird up your loins and get ready. Don't grow weary of doing good. Now that comes again, that slave whose master find him working when he comes, when is the coming? Again, I'm assuming 8070. John Gill says, here's an option to take vengeance on the wicked Jews. So he agrees that that's one option. But then he says, oh, it could be when he comes at the slave's death. 
Well, you might make an application there, but I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. Or at the final judgment, I think Gil means there. He says judgment, the final judgment when he comes. Again, I know a lot of people take this for the second coming. I don't think so. I don't think it fits the comment, the context so well here because he's talking to his disciples who need to deal with something at hand, not something 2,000 plus years in the future. There's other scriptures that sort of parallel this. Matthew 25:21. his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. So you see, we Christians have responsibility in the kingdom if you want to apply this beyond the apostles, which I think is perfectly reasonable to do. Matthew 25:23. his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. That's a repeat. But the point is, is that Christians who are put in charge of Jesus's household possessions, in charge of Jesus's house, the church, those Christians have lots of responsibility. And I'll tell you, anytime you've ever felt spiritually responsible for somebody, you feel that as deep as you feel responsible for your own kids. It's a terrible burden. And I, I've just had a situation, unfortunate, last night with somebody, some young, dedicated, on-fire Chinese Christian, over 10 years, which is unusual in China, leader of her church group, decides she's going to marry a non-Christian. Well, I, I can't tell you how disgusted I am. You know, well, God works in mysterious ways. He works different with me. Then, of course, I don't need to know what the Bible says because the Bible, what's that? I mean, a little bit cynical here, but you know what I mean. Time goes on and people, Christians, have a tendency to forget the master that saved them to start with and to forget that if you love him you will obey him and you will keep his commandments in other words you just get cold or you backslide or you do something stupid whatever you want to call it jesus is he knows human nature and he's telling his disciples don't do that stay faithful to me when i'm not around and when it looks like i'm not coming back luke 12:45 through 46 but if that slave says in his heart my master is delaying his coming Forty years goes by, where's my master? And starts to beat the male and female slaves and to eat and drink and get drunk. That slave's master will come on a day he does not expect in an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now, I've just been saying the slaves were the believers. Now, here, I think Jesus shifts the referent of the word slaves. And now he's talking about the Jews who were warned about Jesus' coming to destroy that old system and all of that discourse. But, that, but those Jews say, ah, 40 years he said he was coming, where is he? No, he's not. And so then he starts to beat the male and female slaves. That's the Christian slaves. He starts to abuse the Christians. Then he starts to get eat and get drunk. He starts to live a sensuous life. That slave's master, i.e. Jesus, will come on a day he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. And that's basically what happened in the Jewish war. It happened so fast. Bang, bang, 87, and wham, they're wiped out. They were sitting pretty during the Pax Romana. And all of a sudden, boom, there's a civil war and the Jews go down. He, the master, will cut him, that unfaithful slave, to pieces and assign him a place for the unbeliever. Pretty serious business. And, of course, that's what happened to the Jews at eighty seventy. They were destroyed. This is a great application for people today in the body of Christ, the abusers of the flock of God. I ran into a guy that had a ministry devoted to people who were, who were abused by pastor popes, little Jim, Jim Jones in the in the making, cult, quasi-cult leaders. you got to obey me because I'm in charge. Touch not God's anointing and all this. The type of people you really find scattered through the charismatic movement. And, but they're everywhere. So this guy was devoted to get to healing up the people 
who have been abused by these type of people. I'm telling you, there's no excuse for shepherds in the body of Christ who abuse their fellow slaves. Because we're all slaves of Jesus. And somebody who goes around and starts saying, I'm your master. No, Jesus is my master. I left a church, one of these abusive pastor churches one time. Abusive pastor's churches one time. I didn't tell him why, but I looked at him and said, you're not going to control me, buddy. You're not going to make me a slave. And I've lived a perfectly happy life by avoiding people like that. But I know my other friends of mine who have not avoided such people and who get abused. It's a terrible thing. Where will they be cut into pieces and assign them a place for the unbelievers? What place is that? Hell. That's a good verse for people like Rob Bell who, and, uh, and for uh, Andy Stanley who don't like to talk about such unpleasant effects of judgment for people who do not believe in Jesus. Jesus, listen, Jesus taught hell, fire, and damnation all over the place. All you got to do is read the Bible to see that. But, oh, we can't read those verses. We might get somebody upset because we have to have a seeker-friendly church. And we got to be friendly to all the seekers. Luke 12, verse 47 through 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself. Now, that would be referring to apostles who knew that Jesus was coming, but they kind of got slack, didn't prepare themselves, didn't go through the spiritual discipline that was necessary to wait for him for 40 years. So they didn't prepare themselves to, to know his master's will or to do it. They will be severely beaten. So let's talk about believers who are going to be chastised in AD 70. Not too pleasant. Verse 48, but the one who did not know and did things deserving of blows will be beaten lightly. And that would be those who didn't understand Jesus' will, kind of the baby Christian types. Much will be required of everyone who has been given much, and even more will be expected of the one who has been entrusted with more. So we see that here in this parable three different grades of punishment. Going from the most severe to the lightest punishment, we have the servants who were cut to pieces in verse 46. That was the uh, non-believing Jews who killed all their fellow Jewish Christians. And then we have those who were severely beaten in verse 47. That referred to those who were Christian, but Christians, but they didn't prepare themselves and didn't stay alert for the master coming back in AD 70. And then we have those who were beaten lightly, who were not given a lot of responsibility. They were just ordinary disciples, and they didn't, they didn't believe, they didn't pay any attention to the things of the kingdom, and they were beaten lightly. So what we have is different levels of punishment. Now, these different levels were based on two things, according to the NIV Study Bible. They, the different levels of punishment were based on privileges each person has. So, in other words, the privileges are based on how much knowledge a person has of Jesus. So, those who sin against a greater light have worse punishment than those sinning against a lesser light. Now, this is a standard principle in Scripture in a different context. Matthew 11, verse 21, we read this. Woe to you, Carson. Carson was a little town north of Bethsaida, excuse me, north of Capernaum. Woe to you, Carson, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. The point being is there was a lot more light in Carson and Bethsaida, because that's where, that was in the area where Jesus was doing his ministry, the Galilean ministry. Lots and lots and lots of miracles and teaching, thousands of people following him there. Tyre and Sidon, he didn't go there. They were pagan. That was the headquarters of Baal and Astarte. And he's saying, look, these guys had less light given to them. And if I'd have done a few miracles there, they probably would have repented. But you, woe to you, Cars and Bethsaida, because you had a lot of light. You sinned against a greater light. And so you're going to get judged pretty badly. 
So the different levels of punishment are based on two things. One is the privileges that the person has, and two, the one's response to his privileges. And I think that's a principle that will stand you in good stand in all contexts in the New Testament. How about this context? Is the, is the principle applicable to heathen who live where there's no gospel knowledge? Does this mean they get punished more lightly when they don't believe? I would think so. Jameson Foster Brown says no, that doesn't get them off the hook for heavier punishments than hell. But I don't think so. I think if you sin against you, you don't sin as much. I believe Adolf Hitler is in a heck of a deeper place than the average person in Indonesia that never heard the gospel before in the 1700s. That's just my humble opinion. Notice in verse 47. Jesus says this, and that slave who knew his master's will and didn't prepare. That, of course, is not God's secret will. Nobody can know that, but rather his revealed will. His revealed will was what Jesus told them in Olivet Discourse. This is what's going to happen. You need to get ready. Wars, rooms of wars, earthquakes, all that kind of stuff. Verse 49, Luke 12. I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. The fire he's referring to is the judgment. And by the way, earth is gay. The accusative here is gain, uh, which means earth, but it also can be translated land, and I would translate it as land here. I came to bring fire on the land. That's the judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy. I came to bring, or eighty sixty six through 70, the Jewish war. I came to bring fire on the land, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. So Jesus sums up his teaching here about getting ready for the judgment and his coming to the earth. I came to bring fire. In other words, I came the first time for the purpose of eventually bringing fire on the earth in AD 70. It hadn't happened yet. I wish it were already set ablaze. Now, why is Jesus longing for judgment? Well, he is because he says, I wish it were already ablaze. I'm assuming fire means judgment here. Some people say it doesn't, but I believe it does. Jesus is longing for judgment. Now, that's a good verse for evangelical wussy pusses who can't conceive of Jesus judging anything, any evil. Oh, sin, what's that? Let's have a sinner-friendly church. Oh, excuse me, a seeker-friendly church. We, Andy Stanley, we can't talk about anything in the Old Testament that might offend our culture and might keep young people with their little earrings in their ears from coming and accepting the gospel. No, Jesus said, I wish the fire was already on the land because judgment brings purification and it brings repentance. In a lot of cases, it brings destruction for those who don't repent, but a lot of people do repent when judgment comes. So Jesus wants it. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said this is an obscure, obscure expression uttered under deep and half-smothered emotion. Well, yeah, you can tell Jesus is emotional when he said it. And, and think about this. He's getting ready for getting crucified. And we're going to see in a minute that he's apprehensive about that, or at least he's thinking about it. Now, I said fire is judgment. Some people say that fire is purity. I came to bring fire on the earth. I came to bring the fire of the gospel to purify the earth from sin. I wish I'd already set it ablaze. I don't think that fits the context too well. Some people say I came to bring fire on the earth by being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus says, John the Baptist says that one comes after me who baptizes in fire and the Holy Spirit. And assuming those two words are in apposition, fire and the Holy Spirit, that means this is fire refers to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying here... I came to bring the Holy Spirit on the earth, and now I wish it, the earth were already set ablaze. I don't think so. Could be, but I don't think so. John Gill gives a suggestion that it's the persecution of God's people by haters of Jesus. I came to bring persecution on the earth. Well, why would Jesus say, I wish the persecution were already here? That doesn't sound too nice for Jesus' church. I think the easiest way to take this verse is talking about judgment. Jesus says, I came to bring judgment on the land, not on the earth, but on the land. If it's referring to the end of the world, it would be, I came to bring judgment on the world, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. Well, if that was the case, he's, Jesus didn't get his wish fulfilled because it's 2,000 plus years 
since he said that, and we still haven't had the earth set ablaze by the judgment at the second coming. So I believe this is AD 70. I came, bring, came to bring fire on the land. Luke 12, verse 50, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how it consumes me until it is finished. And of course, he's talking about his crucifixion, the baptism of suffering, the suffering that Jesus was to do on the, in the, on the cross. When James and John asked him on the way down to Jerusalem, uh, who, could they sit on the right and left hand of Jesus? Mark 10:38, Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's referring to his coming crucifixion. So his baptism means his baptism of suffering. How it consumes me until it is finished. Consumes me. Jesus wanted the suffering to hurry up and be over with. I am consumed with the fact that I'm about to be crucified now. John Gill says, this is the apprehension as a man of his sufferings. Now, interesting thought here. Jesus said, don't worry about one day at a time. Well, the crucifixion is not to that day. Is he worried about what's happening in the future? Well, of course not. He, you know, he's not sinning. So consuming me until his work is finished could mean he wants to get on with the work of saving his sheep, as John Gill says. How it consumes me until I can bring about the gospel and get people saved. I think that's probably what it means. Although I, it's just hard for me to believe that Jesus could face crucifixion on a cross knowing it's coming. He predicted it was going to come and not be worried about it. But he said, you know, don't worry about anything one day at a time. Well, worry's not going to increase your lifespan one hour. So I suspect he wasn't worrying because he's not going to violate his own scripture because he's the son of God and he's perfect. So he's consumed with the thought of getting this this crucifixion finished. Now, it is finished is a phrase that refers to the crucifixion. John 19, 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, i.e. finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Jesus said that on the cross, and he knew that he had finished bearing the sins of the world, so he said everything was now accomplished. John 19, 32 verses later, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. His work of sin bearing on the cross was finished. Matthew 5:18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that verse is controversial, but I think that all is accomplished is again referring to Jesus bearing sin on the cross when it is finished. And that makes the verse make sense because he says, look here, not one dot or stroke of the law will pass away. Not one iota or dot will pass away of the law. The law is still going to be in effect until I die on the cross and sins are born. And now the Old Testament law is kaputski. It's finished. And now the New Testament law of Christ is in, into effect. It happened when my sin-bearing work on the cross was finished, was accomplished. Luke chapter 12, verse 51 through 53. Do you think that I came here to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And I'm sure that what Jesus is talking about here is the strife that's going to be happening on these Jewish Christians when their Jewish kinsmen turn on them for believing in this false Messiah. Jesus said this same teaching in a different occasion, Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. 
So Jesus says in Luke 12, I came to bring division. Luke 12, verse 51. And Matthew 10, verse 34, he says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. A division and sword. Well, now, isn't that strange? I've always thought that was strange because Jesus is supposed to be a man of peace. Why do these verses not contradict these scriptures? Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Luke two fourteen. Jesus speaking. Excuse me, this is not Jesus. I think this is uh, the angel speaking to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Jesus, the Messiah, was going to bring peace to the world. John fourteen twenty seven. Jesus speaking, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. How do you reconcile those verses that say that Jesus is a man of peace versus the ver- against those verses where Jesus says he's not going to bring peace but sword and division? Well, the answer is very simple. Jesus did not come to bring peace peace between Jesus and Antichrist, between light and darkness, between Jesus' children and the devil's children. He came to bring peace between believers and God and peace between believers and other believers. That's a simple distinction that too few people want to make the distinction, especially non-believers. No, we're in a constant war zone. We battle all the forces of darkness against us. I tell people this all the time these days. We're in a war zone. When I was young, I used to think, well, if I could just grow up and and, and solve all these problems in my life. I'm just going to take it easy. Sit back and relax and everything's going to be fine. No, that ain't go, that's not going to happen until we see Jesus in paradise, in heaven. Then we will have perfect peace. But until then, we're in a war zone because there's always going to be Antichrist. There's always going to be demons, Democrats. Oh, excuse me, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, Antichrist, secular, progressive, leftist, social justice warriors, LGBTQ, LSMFT warriors or uh, activist. There's always going to be those type of people around. So we're not going to ever have peace with those people, not until we die, or until Jesus comes back in the final consummation and wipes all of his enemies out, and all knee, everybody shall bow, his, shall bow to the Lord, and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Now the Jews had this idea of the great peace coming, not at the end of the world, but in the days of the Messiah, which would be the end of the age, they put it, the end of their old Jewish age, the age of the Messiah. This was granted on several prophecies in the Old Testament. There are lots of prophecies about Jesus being the Prince of Peace in the Old Testament. And they said, okay, the Messiah is going to bring peace. They were especially thinking of the Romans being driven out. They were thinking about a temporal Messiah bringing a golden age of peace, not a spiritual peace. So they had the idea wrong. So when Jesus starts talking about all this division with a sword on the earth and families being divided against each other, I'm sure that cut against the common Jewish notion of peace golden age of peace when the Messiah reigns. This is a Messiah like they weren't ready for. They weren't expecting a, a Messiah like this. Now, let's talk about enemies in your own household. That's the worst kind of enemy. Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. I think that was quoted in reference to Judas. Judas was in amongst the twelve disciples and betrayed Jesus. That would have been a terrible betrayal because he was close. He was in the in the family, so to speak. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself above me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. 
There is nothing worse than being betrayed by people who are close to you. It's one thing to have enemies from afar off, but when it's your family members, this is Jesus. so Jesus is telling them, get ready for the worst. Your family members are going to turn on you. Now, there's four family members mentioned, father, son, mother, daughter, easy to remember. Or rather, I should say five family members, because we've got an in-law put in here, mother-in-law. So we got father, son, mother, daughter, and then the mother-in-law, that's the son's wife's mother. And then she's mentioned, that's from the son's point of view, then she's mentioned from the wife's point of view, the son-in-law. So those in-law, two are really the same people. So five basic family relationships, and they're going to be divided. Three against two, I think he says here somewhere. That's where they get the five from, three against two, and two against three. So now we go to Luke 12, verse 54. Our last verse, we'll shut it down after this. He, Jesus, also said to the crowds, in addition to the disciples, also in addition to the disciples, he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say a storm is coming, and so it does. Actually, we're not going to finish there. We're going to finish at verse 56. Jesus is talking about, do you see what's about to happen? Can you discern the signs of the time? This is the way it works, even in modern times. I looked this up on the Internet out of curiosity. Jesus, on another occasion in Matthew 16, verses 2 through 3, said this. He answered them, when evening comes, you say it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. There's meteorological reasons for that, which I can't remember, actually, but it doesn't matter. This is typical. Even today, it's true. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. And so this is what Jesus is talking about, about their ability to look at the sky and tell what the weather's going to be, but they can't tell anything spiritual about what's going to come spiritually. He said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, well, that would be coming off the Mediterranean Sea. Of course, that would be carrying a lot of, a lot of water. So right away you say, a storm is coming, and so it does. Then verses 55, he says, and when the south wind is blowing, you say it's going to be a scorcher. And so it is because the south wind's blowing off the desert, no water from the desert, and it's going to be hot. So they couldn't understand the spiritual signs. Verse 56, he says, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this time? The time of the end of the Jewish age and the coming of the establishment of the church, the establishment of the new age, which is going to Happened right around AD 30 when Jesus is crucified and AD 70 when the Jews are wiped out. Now, what kind of spiritual, why don't you know how to interpret this time? What spiritual signs didn't you see? You didn't understand the coming of the Messiah. You didn't understand the threat of the Messiah's death. You didn't understand the coming confrontation with Rome. You didn't understand the eternal consequences of all the above. You are spiritual blockheads. And then he calls them hypocrites in verse 56 because I'm sure there's some Pharisees and Sadducees in the crowd, and he loved to call them hypocrites, you know, seeker-friendly hypocrites. Can you imagine somebody getting up in a church in America today and saying, you hypocrites, you are living in a sexual sewer, you hypocrites, you talk about how you love animals, but you're slicing human beings up in their mother's womb. Can you imagine? Oh, I'm sure he, you would be kicked out of your denomination and all, but everybody would get on Twitter and talk about how unloving and how bigoted you are, how you hate gays and how you hate black people, and on and on and on. Jesus didn't mess around with these these sinners. He said he called them hypocrites. Well, I lied again. I got two, three more verses to go, 57 through 59. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? In other words, about the times of the time, about the changing of the covenants about to happen. As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, and that would be, the adversary would be God, 
excuse me, the ruler would be God, your adversary is Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the enemy of you Jews down here. And so you're going with Jesus to see God. Make an effort to settle with him on the way. In other words, you Jews might ought to believe in me because you're heading to God the Father, and he sent me down here, and, now, and you're killing me instead of receiving me. Settle with him. Settle with your adversary. Settle with Jesus. Then he won't drag you before the judge. Then Jesus won't drag you before the judge. And then the judge, God the Father, won't hand you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff throw you into prison, hell. So in other words, make peace with me, Jesus, so you don't end up in hell because God the Father is going to send you to hell. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last cent. In other words, you're going to pay the eternal punishment for which, which you owe because of your sins. Jesus did not mince his words here, folks. This passage, of course, is reminiscent of a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 25 through 26. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. That was just referring to make peace with your human enemies. Right here in Luke 12, 57, he's talking about making peace with himself, the Messiah, the judge. Jesus said, why don't you judge for yourself what is right? You've got plenty of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, as Gil pointed out. You've got the evidence. You've got signs and wonders were done everywhere. You've got many fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. So why don't you just go ahead and make the correct judgment about who Jesus is? No, nah, but you won't do it. You want to get dragged before God the Father by Jesus and get thrown into hell. That's what you want to do instead of making the correct judgment. Judge for yourself what is right. By this way, we're not supposed to judge. Well... Judge for yourself what is right, Jesus says. Judge righteous judgment, he says in John 7, first part of the chapter. Now, Jesus is clearly warning them of the judgment to come in AD 70, and he does it very harshly here. But hey, he, in doing so, he was showing them mercy. He was trying to get them to repent. And those people were hard-headed and hard-hearted, so he was hard with them. I don't believe you should go up to everybody and talk like Jesus did to them. Of course not. And some people are very penitent over their sins, and they're stricken with pain and guilt and well then you don't go jumping all over you say jesus can heal you for that you don't talk to them about how evil they are and how hard-hearted they are and how they're going to hell no that's a different but if people are arrogant and they're listening to you i know that you don't want to cast your pearls before a swine but if you've got a situation where somebody's actually listening to you but they're arrogant let them know they're heading for trouble hope you enjoyed this audio we'll take up luke 13 next time